Hello, my friends. It's Ryan from the Prolific Creator Podcast. Now, many of you have asked, hey, Ryan, how do I support the show? Well, I finally listened. Starting today, you can subscribe to the Prolific Creator Plus on ACAST Plus for $3 a month. That's less than a cup of coffee. No apps to download and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Get access to the entire archive of Prolific Creator Awesomeness. Over 160 episodes going back to 2017. Yes, that's right, my friends. A plethora of information and inspiration, tips, tricks, and interviews to get your art and work into the world. Remember those ads? Say bye, bye, bye. Wait, there's more. For $5 a month, you can get access to the full prolific creator experience. This includes the full archives, early access to episodes, listener Q&A, book and movie reviews, and interviews not for the public, and perhaps any other awesomeness I might do on the microphone. Sounds awesome, right? Yeah, it does, Ryan. If you want to listen for free, you'll notice the last 50 episodes or so will always be available wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember, by subscribing today, you don't have to download any new apps, and you can simply keep listening on the podcast platform you prefer. Cool. Okay. Cool. Thanks for your love and support in advance. Simply click on the link in the show notes or on my website, and it'll take you where you need to go. Now on to the show. Introducing Self, a new show about real people who are challenging their relationship to money to build a better future for themselves. My new focus is like, as these good things happen in my life, I want to be able to enjoy them. Their loved ones. Now, like, I really don't want my daughters out here wanting for nothing. Um, now it's kind of backfired because <laughs> now they really don't have no respect for me. And their communities. I want to create more services where women can feel supported when they don't have support. Self is live now with new episodes every Wednesday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Prolific Writer Podcast, where speed's the name of the game. Follow an indie author and publisher and his guests as they share inspiration, tips, and advice on writing fast, writing often, and writing well. So you can do the same. Here's Ryan. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is your prolific writer host, Ryan J. Pelton, and I'm really glad that you're here. However, you found us on the train, on the treadmill. If this is your first time listening to the show, we have a great interview planned. Uh, we have uh, Tracy Cooper Posey, and uh, if you haven't heard of Tracy, you probably will in the near future. And we had a great conversation, and she is the epitome of the prolific writer, writing fast, writing often, writing well. She has written almost 95 books, almost 100 books in probably 10, 15 years or so, um, but that's a high rate of words. And we have a great conversation. She writes in rom romance and even kind of developed her own genre of romance sci-fi that she's starting to write in and suspense and writes in all kinds of different unique genres, usually around the romance area. And uh, we had just a great conversation. She's an Australian who ended up in Canada and she has a great story that you're really going to enjoy. And I just love talking to 
Tracy, and this theme that we continually hear on the show is just this one of not giving up and just continually writing. She talks about being divorced and um, trying to get out of her job and writing on the side and having publishing contracts, traditional publishing contracts, and those falling through and just not making the money, not even being able to make a living even as a traditionally published author. And, and you're just going to get some really good insight into the writing world, even in the traditional world that I think the traditional world is glamorized as the only path and the only way to make a living. And she's pretty honest that she had multiple books in traditional publishing and wasn't able to even make a living, uh, wasn't even able to support her family. And, uh, so just, just interesting insight there. And, and, and just also just her process and how she continues to crank out the books and continues to work and continues to, uh, do the work that she wants to do and, and how she discovered self-publishing and indie publishing and, and w- what that allowed her to do. So I, I think you're just going to, you're going to find a great, well-rounded, uh, writer and uh, and this podcast is dedicated to writing fast, writing often, writing well, and you're gonna love getting to know Tracy Cooper Posey. And so, uh, not a whole lot of updates going on uh, with me, uh, but uh, just wanted to get right to the interview. And uh, hope you guys, if you haven't had a chance to listen to some of the other episodes, uh, please do. We got some great more interviews coming up in the near future. Looking forward to sharing those with you. I'll keep those a secret at this point. Uh, but keep on listening, and if you get a chance, go ahead and leave a review at iTunes. We'd love to get some feedback. We'd love to get the, the show into more hands and help more writers get the words on the page. And so glad you're sticking around. Glad you're enjoying the show, and it's been a privilege and a joy doing the show and uh, sharing these interviews with you. So hope you're all doing well, and uh, I'll talk to you guys real, real soon. Never has the story of the old glory needed introduction or reduction. Just the passing on of morals from the parents to the children's generation. Well, hey, uh, I have uh, Tracy Cooper Posey here with me on the Prolific Writer Podcast. And I'm uh, really glad that you stopped by the show. Tracy, how are you today? I'm great, Ryan. Thank you very much for inviting me. Now, I noticed we, we actually have something in common is you're originally from Canada. And actually, my mother-in-law is from Manitoba, uh, Canada, and uh, grew up there, and we have some family in BC and some other places. So, um, yeah, talk a little bit about that. You, you, it sounds like Edmonton. Is that where you're from? Yes, Edmonton, Alberta. So that's kind of in the middle of Manitoba and BC. And um, actually, I'm not originally from there, as you can probably tell by the accent. I originally came from Australia, um, and ended up meeting the guy that I would end up marrying online on the internet in 1996 when the internet was nothing. It was just this wasteland of a few HTML pages and a lot of really prolific email discussion groups, including a screenwriting one that I was on, which is how I met met Mark. Um, Moved over in 1996, and I've been here ever since because the mountains are great, (laughs) so I thought I would stay. Well, that's great. Yeah, I, I I know people would be confused with your Aussie accent. You know, wait, that doesn't sound Canadian. Um, <laughs> but uh, you you know what's what's also pretty cool is I noticed in your bio that your husband used to be a pro wrestler. Is that true? 
Yes, he he was. His stage name was Mr. Intensity, and for anyone who's listening to this that is into wrestling, you can probably find some of his matches online if you look up Mr. Intensity, Mark Posey. Um, we branded our kids something terrible when they were growing up because they had a romance writer mother and a professional wrestling father. So they, the teasing at school never stopped. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, you know, personally, I think today that would be actually be very cool that our kid, my kids would say that's like the most, the coolest thing I've ever heard. Uh, you know, to have parents that were wrestlers and writers and all that, but, uh, uh, but that's here or there. So, um, well, hey, thank you, uh, Tracy, for coming on the show. And, and we are part of the same writing group. And so, um, it's, it's always a thrill to meet new writers and to hear their stories. And, uh, what I, what I love about this show is not because I host it and it's awesome, but, um, is that we have some just amazing guests and we learn so much from, uh, just the different stories and experiences that, um, writers have and the different, you know, uh, influences they have and genres they, they write in. And I wanted to just open the time because I mean, a, a lot of people might, you know, some people know you, some people don't, but, um, is you've written like a million books. So how, <laughs> how many books, you know, as of, let's see, March 22nd, 2017, how many books have you written at this point? Um, as of March 22nd, well, let's make it 23rd because book number 84, I think it is, comes out tomorrow. Wow. I'm just looking it up here. Um, I actually have to keep notes of things like this these days because it just there are so many and i yes so book number 84 comes out tomorrow <laughs> that's amazing so let, let's uh before we get into kind of going way back we'll, we'll just we'll stay there for a second but uh you, you write predominantly in kind of romance uh sci-fi romance is that kind of your main genre um well I consider myself primarily a romance writer and because when I first started writing romance, there was no such thing as science fiction romance, which was primarily my first love these days. So I kind of dabbled in romance across genres. I was doing romantic suspense and paranormal and vampires and time travel and I, I tried all sorts of things. And I finally, now that there is a science fiction romance genre, um, that's, that's pretty much coming home for me. That's that's where I would like to stay. So uh, yeah, I've I've been everywhere. I'm, the book that comes out tomorrow is actually straight science fiction. It's space opera. Um, but yeah, I, t I tend to, to go back to romance. Um, there's a couple of really good reasons for that. Uh, uh, do you want to know? <laughs> How yep. I got into romance in, in the beginning. Yeah, no, I was actually going to ask your influences, romance and sci-fi and where that comes from. Yeah, well, it's kind of an interesting story, particularly as you know Harrison Ford or have met him. I've seen the photo of you online with him. <laughs> uh, and that was, I think that's what kick-started me into writing it all was Star Wars when it first came out. I was quite young, uh, early teenager. Um, so if you count on your fingers, you've got a pretty good idea of how old I am. And uh, I, I think it, it had a massive impact on me. I'm sure it had a massive impact on, on thousands of people. But me in particular, um, it was such a, a huge breakthrough in storytelling and stuff like that, although it really actually goes back to standard storytelling, which is, I think, in part why it was so successful. But... Uh, Harrison Ford, 
and um, Princess Leia and Han Solo in the second movie, The Empire Strikes Back, they had this little romance thing going on in the movie that just it struck very, very deep for me. I mean, the dialogue was so cheesy. It was just, it was unbelievable. The worst dialogue in the world. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but those two actors managed to get so much feeling into that. And when they were putting him into the, the, the freezer thingy, I forget what they call it, mm-hmm. uh, there was such a look on his face mm-hmm. that it, it buried really deep. And pretty much ever since then, I have been trying to capture that sort of feeling in my books. So, but at that stage, um, I wrote the unofficial Star Wars sequel. <laughs> uh, they didn't call it fan fiction then. There was, no, there was no name for it. I didn't even know other people did that, except that my English teacher at the time caught me writing it and suggested I write something original, which I did. And he submitted it for publication and it was rejected, promptly, <laughs> probably just as well, I think. Um, but that kind of committed me to writing. And because there was no such thing as science fiction romance at the time, I sat down and analysed because all my major reading was science fiction and history and I was all over the place as far as my favourite books. And when I analysed them, the thing that a lot of them had in common was a romantic subplot. Mm. They also had a very strong storytelling um very high emotion in them. So I figured, okay, clearly I need to be writing romance. And that's pretty much where I've stayed ever since, mm. even though the romance subgenre tends to, to shift around as my interest shifts because I just can't stay in one forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really in- insightful because I think some of the reason Star Wars movies and they hold up even today, I think is because of that romantic kind of subplot. Uh, you know, I, I think you take away that, that plot in those movies, it, it's probably not that interesting. I mean, it's, you know, they're obviously a little bit dated, but, but also I think, you know, in, in many books, that's the, the thing that kind of holds it together. And uh, there was actually a book I read recently. It's talking about, they're kind of analyzing bestseller books. And it was really interesting because they were talking about how you would think, you know, why do people pick up a book and read it? And one of the, the main reasons was this idea of relationships and romantic relationships. It could be family relationships. And some, yeah. people, and some people say, well, that's really boring and everybody, you know, everybody knows about that. But that's that's what's human and that's what, you know, draws people in because we all understand that. We understand family. We understand romance. We understand those things. And so when we see it in a book, it's really, you know, attractive and, uh, you know, you want to, because you go, oh, I get that. Oh, I felt that. Oh, you know. Um, yeah, I think that's how we identify with with the fictional characters that we read. Mm-hmm. And I think romance is just a, a microcosm of um, emotional storytelling, mm-hmm. which is what we mostly get out of books is is the emotion. So yeah, I think you you've really got the point there. Mm-hmm. That's that's a good point. Well, and I was going to add too. I think that's romance gets a bad rap for that reason. Is and I mean, I think a reason that's not fair is the fact that people read a ton of it is not because you know they they long for you know escape. It might be that, but I think it also has to just do with we can relate to it. And you know, it doesn't matter if you live in Australia or California or wherever. Like we all, we all get the the love thing and the relationship thing, and and we all want relationships and we want friendships and we want romance and that kind of stuff. Um, and so, you know, like you're saying, the best romance is the ones that 
really nail the emotion and the feeling mm. feeling of what's going on. Um, yeah, if you can if you can get your reader, you know, completely wrapped up in in the relationship, you you've usually won them over. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So you started way back when Star Wars, uh, Han Solo. Yes, I have met Han Solo. He's a very nice man. Uh, I mentioned to you earlier that you know my father knows him, and so it, it sounds more impressive than it is. But yes, we did exchange pleasantries for two minutes, and uh, but uh, yeah, th- um, so you know sci-fi romance really wasn't a thing, and so you kind of shifted into the romance uh, genre and arena, um, and so. Um, so let's talk about that a little bit about kind of your influences and, you know, as far as writing goes, uh, you know, what were you a household of writers, creatives, artists, you know, what, what were kind of the influences kind of growing up that kind of led you to, Hey, I want to write books. And cause you've obviously written a million of them. So, um, so, so talk a little bit about that. Well, I, I think I broke the mold as far as my family's concerned um, for Australians where, we're sort of very uh, middle class and, you know, getting, going out and getting the job and, and paying the bills was, was the big thing in my family. So I kind of, um, I subsumed the writing for a long time. I didn't really get into writing full time until I was a single mother um, with a, two failed marriages and two little kids. And then I was actually in law school at the time and as a single mother with two little kids, which I sometimes shake my head over, um, and finally realized that getting the respectable job and, you know, paying all the bills wasn't going to do it for me, that it wasn't making me happy and that what would make me happy was, okay, defy the expectations of my entire family and see if I can write for publication. So I started writing, and I think it took four books and about five years to actually get published after that. And, and that pretty much I have I moved to Canada in the meantime, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, have been writing ever since. And I, I stayed in the romance genre, but I don't actually read humongous amounts of romance, believe it or not. I, Star Wars was my early influence. And then I also, a few weeks after Star Wars came out, I read a book called Dune by Frank Herbert. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, for North Americans, that's Dune, I guess. <laughs> um, also, The Chrysalids by John Wyndham, who's a British writer. So there was, there was a lot of this science fiction stuff going on in my background. And, of course, around that time, I fell totally in love with Lord of the Rings. So the speculative fiction was, was kind of grabbing me by the throat. And I think... One of my favourite series ever was uh, Mary Stewart's Merlin series, which is a, a, another British one. Um, starts with the Crystal Cave and the Hollow Hills. I think that had a, a huge impact on me when I was around about that age too. And then later on, um, I think another of my favourites was um, The Abyss. It was written by Orson Scott Card, but it was based on the screenplay by James Cameron. Uh, probably one of the best screen tie-ins I've ever read in my life because he really went off track <laughs> and, and made it a great story. And it's got that huge romance in it as well, which I think makes it a spectacular story. So I was kind of, the, the romance thing was, was locked in there. But, uh, and I, I sold a few romances, normal ones, a historical and a, a contemporary but then I got coaxed into trying the erotic romance market, which was just starting up. 
with Alora's Cave, and people were making huge amounts of money there. And uh, I'm afraid I, I got lured by the money. Mm. <laughs> so I ended up uh, making some, some pretty serious money, just not quite enough to actually ever quit the job, the day job. I, was, I had a day job all the, along this time. Mm -hmm. But when I got into indie publishing in 2011, that's where things really started taking off. And I got to quit the day job at the end of 2015, and I've been writing full-time for two years now. Oh, great. So when you were, um, you know, single mom trying to make it, you know, a lawyer or at least in law school and, you know, thinking, you know, I really would like to write, um, what were, what were some of the jobs you were doing, um, alongside your writing? Um, well, I was just a full-time student at that stage. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the things that you can get away with in Australia because they will, um, fund your education. Mm. And if you're a single mother with children at home, they will also pay for your essentials, so food and shelter and, and build utilities and things like that. So I was able to go to just do law school full time for a couple of years until I realized that I was absolutely fooling myself that this was never going to work. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, so I, I decided to, to do the writing straight after that. And... Um, Moved to Canada and got the day job. <laughs> Suddenly had four children instead of two. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, the, the day job from then on. I, all my jobs that I was doing were non-writing. There was administrative support and I, I edited a magazine for a while. Um, I worked at a printing company. And the really interesting thing is all the jobs that day jobs that I did when I went to indie publishing in 2011, they all supported the job. It was, they gave me all the, the experience I needed. I can lay out my own books. I can format the print books. Yeah. Uh, I can do pretty serious clean-up editing. And uh, so I only use a line editor these days to, to, to do the final check. And so everything I had done as a day job ended up very nicely segueing into the indie publishing, which was nice. So we'll we'll get to your a little bit more of your process and production and all that in a little bit, but um, yeah, I'd like to just stay there for a second. Um, mm. How did you find? Uh, you know, I should say, what what did kind of your rhythms look like? You know, four kids, uh, day job, you know, cranking out books. Like, wh where did you kind of find the time to actually keep keep on writing? It was a good question, actually. I think it's one that drove me crazy for years. I kept experimenting. I kept reading books about time management. Um, I used to have some fairly serious discussions with my husband about time and when I could write and things like that. And I think in the last few years I got into a routine where uh, I would get on the bus at 6.30 in the morning to go to work and that would give me an hour. And I'd sit there with the uh, sound counselling earbuds in my ears Music cranked up really loud, ignoring everyone on the bus, <laughs> and I would write as fast as I could for that hour. I'd get to work. I'd write at lunchtime in the boardroom. Everyone got very used to seeing me sitting in the, at the board table. And then it took an hour and a half to get home on the bus, so I'd have another 90 minutes to just crank out as much as I could. And in the evenings, depending on what was going on, I could maybe get a little bit more, but I wouldn't count on that time. 
the weekends were where I got the, the really heavy duty stuff done, a lot of the production and, and where I needed the internet connection and things like that. So it was, it was really just a matter of being bloody minded and preserving that time that I had and cranking the books out. And as it turned out, um, the, the last year that I was writing with a day job, I got 12 books published that year written oh, wow. from scratch. Wow. What, what would you say is kind of the average size word count pages? Um, well, some of them were some of them were really long. They were like eighty, ninety thousand. Oh, wow. um, I've gone up to one hundred and twenty. No, actually, the longest I've ever done is two hundred and fifty thousand. But that was a, a one-off. Um, these days, I'm writing shorter. Uh, those twelve that I wrote, I'd say the average was mm, fifty thousand. Mm-hmm. So uh, they were they were books. They were decent length novels. Um, and yeah, it's it's kind of interesting the way because of indie public the influence of indie publishing and people getting away from print lengths, um, books are getting shorter. And these days, it's perfectly acceptable to write a story and leave it as long as it turns out. So if it's only forty three thousand words, you can do forty three thousand words. If it comes out at seventy, it comes out at seventy. It's it means that the story doesn't get warped to fill some um, arbitrary word count, which is nice. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a real freedom we have, you know, to write today in indie publishing because, you know, depending on who you read, I mean, a lot of the word counts and pages are actually just from traditional publishing and, mm. you know, it's, it's about selling books and how it looked on a bookshelf and it really wasn't about the story. And that's why, you know, you read a lot of the traditional published books and they're really bloated. Um, yes. And there's, you know, middle parts of the book, it's just unnecessary and boring and you know uh, yeah and, and, and yeah and sometimes your eyes starts glazing over start right. glazing over because you're just trying to get to the end of the right. story you know a 700 page book could easily have been 300 and been great mm. you know um you know l- let's go back a little bit um to kind of those moments i'm always interested uh you know writers and, and authors that um, kind of these moments where when did you kind of know, like, I think I can do this, um, you know, early on, you know, you said you wrote a couple books, a couple of more published. I mean, what was the moment where you said, you know, I'm going to do this and, and this is why. And, you know, uh, talk a little bit about that. Is there like a specific mm-hmm. moment or specific time when you said, you know, I, I really enjoy this, you know, whether I get paid or not, I want to keep doing this. Yeah, I, I, I did sort of have the, the light bulb moment. Um when I was that single mum with two kids in Australia and I was I was maintaining distinctions at law school and just I was not getting sleep and I was driving myself crazy and then both kids got sick at once and I got sick as well and I'm I'm sort of as sick as a dog <laughs> trying to look after kids who are also sick and miserable and it was it was one of those dark nights of the soul where I sat there thinking is this really what I want to do and Two days before I'd had a conversation with an actual lawyer, she was very successful. She was a partner at her firm. And one of the things that she said that really struck home for me that night when I was sitting there feeling very sick was that um, she had two children. She never saw them. And I was thinking, you know, is this really, really what I want to do? And, And I was thinking, well, what does make me happy is all the writing that I've done all these years and not told anyone and never discussed it with my family and never even dreamed that that you know it could be something that I would I could do and I thought well 
why not? I got into law school as a mature age single mum. If I can do that, surely I must be able to write a book. And I thought, right, that's it. So I quit the next day and told my astonished family at a barbecue the next weekend that um, I was going to write for publication. And I didn't look back. That was That's all I've done ever since then. So it's just kind of this moment. I've heard other um, guy I know, Jeff Goins, he talks about that. You know, yes, just, yeah. Just saying, you know, I'm a writer. And... <laughs> And, and just that confession, like, I don't need to be ashamed of it. It's what I do. It, it's not until we actually say we are, then we actually, you know, it's not about publication, well, no, you know, go, it's go ahead. A point there, but it did actually take me, I had to finish about two books before I had the guts to say out loud to anyone else that I was a writer mm. and, until I actually finished those two books and, and felt somewhat legitimate. And even then I still sweated over until I got published. Then it, it sort of was just me saying out out loud. <laughs> but I think that publication point is for a lot of people is the breakthrough when they go, right, okay, mm -hmm. I'm a published writer. I'm actually a writer. Mm -hmm. so. Is that a weird – I think I find that interesting. It, it, why writing? Is, I think of all the arts and professions, it's something about writing. It's like people are embarrassed to – actually tell someone that, Hey, I wrote this thing. You should read it. It's like, <laughs> you know, like people make, you know, make all kinds of stuff and Hey, buy my product. Hey, see this thing. And, but when it comes, yeah, comes to I'm, writing, we're so insecure. Yeah, it is. It's true. And I, I, I think in my particular case, it's because my family was not artistic. Hmm. Uh, and it's only after now that I've been published for so many years and now that I'm actually doing it as a job and, 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 earning enough money to do it full time that I've found out that my mum told me just a, a year or so ago, my grandmother used to write. Mm. And uh, <laughs> so there was apparently something in the air in the family, but uh, it got passed down to me and skipped a generation. And, um, but yeah, I, I, I think this embarrassment over writing is, it's a, it is an interesting ph phenomenon. And I think if, if people, these days it's a lot more easier because you've got the internet, uh -huh. which means that you can go on and, and lurk in a lot of groups that are writing groups that are talking about writing, and that makes it a lot easier. But back in those days, and we're talking like 1996, um, people, particularly in Australia, people didn't talk about that sort of thing. It, it's very much a cultural thing too. Hmm. So. That's interesting. Yeah. It, I mean, I wonder what it's like, yeah, other places of the world too, you know, just – the the insecurity or just the you know and I, I think you know it's interesting your story and I hear this a lot with different people I interview is almost the embarrassment or the well I can't tell my family I'm going to be a writer because that's not a real it sounds big headed or something like yeah that. or it's yeah. it's not a real job I mean that's just playing yeah. that's that's you know that's not a lawyer that's not a doctor that's not a teacher that <laughs> I, my father would have said oh that's just arty farty <laughs> right right yeah it, it's you can't pay bills with that and um so i think it's it's you know that stigma too of indie publishing self-publishing is beginning to go away too where some of the better books that are being written today are actually coming out of the indie community and you know which is really exciting that it's it's also being seen as you know legitimate 
path mm. and career and and it's not just people playing around or well you just make up stories and your little stories in your little room and you know um but yeah people are making good livings doing it and i think it's yeah. pre pretty exciting yeah and i think the interesting thing about indie is it covers the complete spectrum because you can have people that are playing around and you can have mm -hmm. people that are putting up rubbish yeah but as long as those people are there putting up rubbish or playing around it means that nobody else is being barred from publication so that means we we as readers get the opportunity to read everything that gets written basically mm -hmm. uh, which is when we had the, with the gatekeepers with traditional um, we didn't get that choice before indie came along mm -hmm. so I think that's one of the great things about indie mm -hmm. yeah so let, let's talk a little bit about that just your transition from traditionally published to indie publishing kind of mm -hmm. what what have you seen as as you know, the good, bad, and the ugly with either or, um, and kind of what you're learning about indie. Uh, you know, obviously you're doing that, uh, sounds like predominantly now. Um, but yeah, just kind of what your experience has been with both. Well, I did, I traditionally published 35 titles, um, a, including a small press in Canada, a, a New York publisher, and Alora's Cave and online publishers where, where I was primarily getting most of my income. And I found it incredibly frustrating with, with the traditional publishing and um, things like uh, the print edition of a book had come out and I wouldn't be told I'd get a reader you know, emailing me saying, oh, congrats on the new print edition. <laughs> oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I sort of, I had heard about indie publishing primarily through Joe Conrad's blog at the time and dismissed it. It was just, oh, I couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. But it, it sat in the back of my mind for a couple of years and I kept going back and reading his blog and, and, and finally I had a very unhappy incident with a publisher um, that uh, basically had them coming back to me and saying, well, we don't have to do that because it's not in the contract. And uh, <laughs> I can't get into any more detail than that, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But it, it was it was a wake up call. So I yanked the book that I had just submitted to them, and I took three weeks to indie publish it. It, it took me that long to figure out the, the how to get everything set up and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. I published that and started getting sales within a month. And I was I was sitting there looking at it, thinking. Why haven't I done this all along? This is like perfect. Indie publishing gives me 100% control over everything. Yeah. So I don't have to worry about a publisher saying, oh, we don't have to tell you that because it's not the contract. Mm -hmm. um, they're not anywhere inside. And I think that was, it took me that one book and I went, oh, this is great. This is wonderful. So I ended up uh, pulling over the next two years every book I had in Legacy and getting the rights reverted, which involved a lot of watching, tracking sales every month and waiting for it to drop below the, the sufficient level and then quickly asking for the rights back. And uh, I republished those under as, as indie titles over the next couple of years while I was madly writing my own titles as well. And I have not looked back. I'm 100% indie now. I... It, the, if for a traditional pub, for me to consider traditional publishing these days, the deal would have to be so fantastic <laughs> um, to make it worthwhile. One, giving up the income 
because uh, you, you lose massive amounts of income as soon as you go traditional, and two, the control. Uh, and three, th that book's gone. You, I mean, it's your life plus 70 years that they get to hang on to it. Mm -hmm. So there's got to be some serious money involved for anyone to consider doing a traditional deal these days. It's, mm -hmm. it's, and it'd have to be, it would have to be print only. And it's mm -hmm. just so many qualifiers and conditions for me to even consider it. So, yeah, it's it's a control thing. It's that control is marvelous, and I think it gives uh, new writers a choice these days that I didn't have when I originally first got into writing, mm -hmm. uh, which is marvelous. So, am I correct in saying this? so? You wrote thirty five books, but you weren't able to go. Full time, right? I mean, even with no, even with traditional no, I, deals, and it was I was earning so little. Mm. <laughs> it was ridiculous. Um, I think even with the online publishers who were, were earning crazy amounts of money for some authors, I think my biggest month ever was two thousand mm -hmm. dollars. And uh, it's despite the fact that I was putting out titles nearly one every month. Um, the, you're only earning at that stage, I think it was 12.5% for the online publishers. And uh, somebody like uh, Harlequin Silhouette, you're getting 1.2% uh, of net sales and then they were pulling that little deal where they were selling their books to a subsidiary for a discount so you'd get even less in the end. So, yeah, it, the, the earning power you can get from traditional is just woeful. Mm -hmm. The only way that that it's really worthwhile is if you're pretty sure that you can sell a lot of copies. Mm -hmm. hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Cause I think that's a story that most people don't understand is, you know, some people want, well, if I have traditional, I'm validated, I'm going to have the marketing, I'm gonna have all that. But you know, here you are 35 books and you're not even able to, you know, leave the day job. And yeah, no, it was, it was, it was woeful. And that's the other thing too that I hear all the time is, oh, well, a traditional publisher will market my book. Mm -hmm. uh, no, mm -hmm. they won't. Right. Uh, you have to be like Stephen King for them to put serious money into the marketing. Sure. And a lot of people say, oh, but there's, you know, there's a clause in my contract that says they're going to spend so many dollars on marketing. And yes, they will. But most of that marketing is co-op marketing that involves a line in the catalogue along with, you know, 12 other authors for that season. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, the, the, the marketing clause in contracts can be fairly deceptive. And ultimately, if you want to be a success and you don't have uh, – and they haven't given you a, a $50,000 or a $100,000 advance, you're going to have to get out there and do the marketing yourself. Mm -hmm. So there's very little payoff for a, a traditional contract these days. Mm -hmm. So are your books right now, are you um, predominantly Amazon? Are you wide? Uh, how, how have you kind of thought about that, those kinds of things? I did try um, Kindle Unlimited for a while, mm -hmm. um, but when the price per page read kept going downwards each month, I kind of thought, well, this is crazy. <laughs> um, plus, I um, recently met uh, Mark Lefebvre, who runs Kobo, mm -hmm. And he said something very interesting. He said that uh, we notice when you keep yanking your books and putting them into Kindle Unlimited and then putting them back and you lose traction. Mm -hmm. um, and I believe iTunes also takes note of things like that too. I wouldn't be able to say about Barnes & Noble. Mm -hmm. So it pays to go wide because you've got readers that 
A, don't like shopping at Amazon, or B, can't shop at Amazon for one reason or another. So you're increasing your international audience as soon as you go wide. Mm -hmm. And plus, you need to stay there. You can't keep chopping and, and swapping and, and going into Kindle Unlimited and coming out. You need to... To, to stay and build up a track record with the other retailers mm -hmm. and then all sorts of wonderful things happen I uh, my books when I put them up for when I upload them for publication these days I can it Kobo will have it through in 90 minutes uh, as opposed to the three-day business wait that you usually have to wait for um, so you, you you start getting you get noticed and, and I don't know if I'm getting preferential treatment I couldn't say that it's not like I'm on a first name basis with anyone there, mm -hmm. but um, I do notice that a lot of my books get picked up for promos when I put them in, mm -hmm. and they do get passed through relatively easily. I don't have lots of hassles with formatting and things like that, so I think it's worth developing the relationship with those retailers so that you can reach the readers that, for whatever reason, can't or won't shop at Amazon. Um, and so, yeah, Kobo and iTunes are my two biggest outside of Amazon, and, and they're fairly hefty monthly checks. Okay. Yeah, it's great to hear. I mean, I think some people just think Amazon's the only only way, and and you know there aren't readers elsewhere. I think what you said about not keeping them there long enough is probably the key. I think some people pull the plug too much. I know I've done that too. I've tried to go wide, and it's just like, oh, it's not working. You know, <laughs> go back. Yeah. Go yeah. Back. No, it, it does take yeah. a while to, yeah. to get that traction going again. So every time you pull it out, you're kind of penalizing yourself because you basically you're setting yourself back and you have to go through like another six to 12 months to actually build up that readership again. So yeah, it's it's. I think you either you stay with Kindle Unlimited or you stay with Wide. Mm -hmm. You need to make a choice and figure out what works for you. I am because I am a control freak. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't like having all my eggs in that one basket. So I'm I'm quite happy to stay Wide. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've had the privilege of talking to Kevin Tomlinson. He's with Draft to Digital, and mm. um, he's oh, I love. After yeah, they, they make the process so easy. And he, I mean, he's the one that's convinced me, he says, hey, you know, just slowly, you know, kind of move your books out and it'll take some time. But I mean, draft digital makes it so easy. I think there's no excuse now. I think a lot of people actually, because of the difficulties of doing things directly um, with each publisher makes it people kind of get nervous or they, they go, Oh, I can't do this. This is too much. And now with services like draft to digital and others, it, it just makes it very easy. Yeah, wow. actually draft to digital do too. And Smashwords are so many more places than draft to digital, mm. but their dashboard interface is somewhat problematic. Yeah, um, it's horrible. It's not quite <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So. Sorry, Smashwords, if you're listening, <laughs> but, uh, it's, um, I actually did that for a long while. Uh, Barnes & Noble, because I'm sitting in Canada, won't let me go direct, period. Mm -hmm. um, so I have to use either Smashwords or draft to digital to get to Barnes & Noble. Um, but Kobo and iTunes, it took us a while, but we, we moved over to, to do, dealing with them directly. And I prefer, again, it's a control thing. The dashboards at Kobo and draft to digital and iTunes have got so many more functions available if you're going direct. Mm -hmm. So it's worth taking the time and trouble to open up those accounts. Mm -hmm. But when you start out, um, it can be really overwhelming, like you said. So 
if you just use draft to digital to get everywhere else but Amazon, that's fine. Just it gets you there. And then as you get more sophisticated and, and you get used to the process, you can start mood, uh, going out to the individual booksellers directly. That's really good advice. Really good advice. Well, let's, let's transition a little bit. We'll get into a little bit of your process, but um, I wanted to just get uh, so interesting. I, you know, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think I read that you used to teach uh, romance writing at a college. And, yes. um, you know, I was interested in that because I, I wanted to just get into a little bit of just story before we get into actual process things. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, when you think about story and, you know, writing specifically romance or, or just story in general, I mean, what are some of the things that you kind of encourage your students, you know, even those listening? I mean, we have a lot of aspiring writers, we have veteran writers, but, um, you know, just from a story standpoint, like when you sit down to write, I mean, what are you thinking about? What have you learned about story in itself and what makes a good book? And, and just maybe even some of the things you taught your students back in the day. Well, speaking purely from a romance point of view, mm-hmm. uh, romance is a slightly different animal from um, the other genres because you don't really have a central character. You have two. And if you write Minaj like I do sometimes, you actually have three. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. but... Um, that changes the function of the story. But having said that, depending on which genre you're writing in, they all have expectations. Mm -hmm. So if you're writing science fiction, there is an expectation that there will be a planet there somewhere, that it will be set in the future and that technology may or may not have an impact on the story. If you're writing horror, your readers expect to be scared. (laughs) If you're writing a mystery, there needs to be some question, a huge question that's not answered until the end. If you're writing a murder mystery, there has to be a body and there has to be a killer at the end revealed. So even though romance is slightly different, all the genres have their expectations and I think that's one of the earliest things that that new writers need to get a handle on is what is the expectation of the genre that you're writing for? Very important because if you disappoint the readers who know this stuff, they may not be able to write it down in a list, but they know if a story is not working for them. Mm. They, For example, with romance, if you don't give them that happy ending, you're dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, you're screwed. Sorry. but yeah. So, yeah, it's understanding genre, I think, is one of the, the critical functions of, of writing popular fiction. And even literary fiction is a sort of a genre of its own. It has its own expectations too. So even if you think, oh, well, I'm writing literature, yeah, that's okay, that's fine too. But, you know, readers that like literature have their own expectations as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really, really helpful because I think, uh, you, you know, it, it's so funny. Stories are, there, there really are no new stories. Um, and I think what you're saying is kind of to that point is that well, there's going to be a murder in a certain genre. There's going to be a romance that better have a happy ending. Like that's how they all end. I mean, so the the difference I think in any story, because this is where, you know, I want, I'm speaking to the, encouraging the, the aspiring writer right now with you is we get so worried about, I don't have an original story. I don't have yeah, some, something like, fresh or, or unique. And you go, no, 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 no. Like if you have these certain, I don't want to use tropes, but they are tropes. If they, they are tropes. Yeah. Yes. But what's going to make your story unique is your own voice and your own characters. You know, 
it's the same story. I mean, the Star Wars story has been told eight million times, but it's been yeah, told. Yeah, I mean, we've got a princess for goodness' sake. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's just with different names and different setting yeah. and different planets. I mean, there's no there's no difference, and so I think that's where people get so nervous. You know, with a thriller, oh, I don't know how to do that. Well, no, you just you have a different character, you have a different setting, and but you got to have these certain expectations. And I think um, th- that's the beautiful thing. I mean, again, I. I readers are smart and they go, Hey, I like this story. I like, you know, they read your books cause they go, Oh, I like these characters. You know, I've heard this story before, but they're just different characters. And actually I think you've, you've hit on a really good point there too. It's the characters that make the difference. Mm-hmm. So if you spend all your time developing your characters mm-hmm. and making them interesting to you and, and making their backstory make sense and then writing them the best way that you can, you're guaranteed to come up with something right. original just because it's your voice that's that's doing the talking. Right. So, yeah, I, I, I remember sweating when I was a new writer about, oh, I've got to come up with all these, you know, cool ideas. Mm-hmm. And, no, it doesn't actually work that way. Right. It ends up. The character is the focus of the story. Yeah. And, you know, and I think, too, in nonfiction, you know, I write some nonfiction, too, and, and I, you know, I get insecure, too, and I'm like, you know, but the difference when I write nonfiction is what I'm talking about, it's not that I'm the only one that's ever talked about this, but I have my own voice, I have my own angle, I have my own arguments, illustrations, you know, research. That's what makes it unique. It's not the topic. I mean, there's nothing new under yeah. the sun. You know, it's, yeah. it's like, and oh, you, wow, yeah. you've never heard that yeah. before. And with nonfiction too, it's, it's, it could be that you have the absolutely perfect analogy and way of describing a fairly typical situation that just resonates with a particular set of readers, whereas as someone else who's doing a nonfiction book on exactly the same subject mm-hmm. may miss because their analogy doesn't work for those readers. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's, there's always room for a new voice. Right. I think that's what's exciting. I think people, because they always think, well, the, we don't need any more books. I think we're good now. You know, <laughs> I think it's all been said. Uh, but, you know, that's why we need your voice. We need everyone's voice. Um, well, hey, let's let's get into just kind of as we kind of get to the back end of the interview, just some process stuff. Because I'm always interested, uh, you know, you've been writing a while. So um, kind of where you began, I mean, you're, you know, single mom, couple kids, law school, like, hey, I'm going to do this writing thing. You know, how did your process kind of evolve from the beginning? I mean, were you, a, you know, outliner? Were you a pantser? Were you, I mean, where did you even begin and kind of where you've kind of evolved? What have you kind of been learning along the way? Well, I started off, good question, actually. Um, I started off as a pantser. I just sat out and started writing. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it seemed to me that was the, the natural way to do it was it's writing, okay, so you sit down and you write. And I think I wrote oh, four books that absolutely sucked. <laughs> they were terrible. They will never see the light of day. Um, and I sat back and, and I had a critique group at the time that, that we were sharing our work with and I was getting, okay, it's all right. But nobody was sitting up and going, wow, yet. And I was thinking, I'm missing something here. <laughs> nobody was cheering. No, no. Um, which is quite humiliating when you're going to tear down the world and, and land on the New York Times bestseller list first book out. Right. But, um, so I started reading. I tripped over a screenwriting uh, manual and in the library, and I started reading that. And suddenly, so if you can imagine all these Las Vegas lights going off over my head, um, it was like 
blinkers and, and you know, I w- was suddenly could see <laughs> um, pl- because all screenwriters plot in advance. Mm. They have to. It's how they sell their screenplays. Right. It's how they, they, they do elevator pitches and they do pitch sessions. And so they've got to know their story before they, they write it down. So plotting and the structure of the story was absolutely critical and it was all done up front. It wasn't something that you sort of figured out on the fly on the way through. So I sat down and I actually plotted out the next book. And that next book was a book called Eyes of a Stranger, which won a national award and was also the first book I got published. Hmm. And uh, so from then on, I have plotted all my books. And I've actually tried every now and again to to break off and and try pantsing a book. Can't do it. (laughs) I just – it. After so many books, I am incapable of just sitting down and writing into the dark anymore. Mm. So, yeah, the, the plotting kind of got hardwired in at, at that point, but it's not like I do 80-page outlines like Ken Follett does, I, I believe, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is just amazing. Um, I My outlines are I get the structure of the story down. I know what's going to happen when and in which order, but... It'll be just one scene described in a sentence or a short paragraph, and that's my plot. And then I sit down and I put the plot at the bottom of my manuscript, and then I write up the top, and as I write the scene, I delete that portion of the plot underneath, and I write from beginning to end. I'm very linear. (laughs) Okay. What does your your days look like? Uh, Well, I should say, what do they look like these days now that you're kind of full-time? Not kind of, mm. you are full-time. Uh, you know, what does your, your writing day look like? How do you, you know, you talked about productivity and obviously you're mm. outlining, you know, staying focused. Do you have like a word count goal? Do you have a page goal? Do you have just, you know, write for a certain amount of hours? How how's that look for you? Well, spreadsheets are my friend. Um, I get... I get down to my desk about 6.30 each morning, which is after Mark has left for the day. And 6.30 to noon is my writing time. But because I plot, that means that sometimes I will be plotting in that time instead of actually writing fresh manuscript. But that time up until noon is devoted to producing manuscript in one way or another. So I I will plot and then I will immediately start writing and then I'll start plotting the next book. In the afternoons, until I'm done for the day, because I have a to-doist is my – productivity tool that I just love and adore that keeps my keeps my life on the rails and so does OneNote. Uh-huh. So I have a very long to-do list, which includes in the afternoon I do all the administrative and production stuff. So production includes the editing, the formatting, getting the covers made, uh, getting everything up on uh, the retailers. And now that I've got so many books, that production includes review of backlist which becomes a major time sink all on its own. You've got when you've got 90 books up there, uh, right. books that you published two, three years ago start looking really dusty because the information, the the, the, the metadata and the end front and back matter all start getting out of date very quickly. So you've got to spend a lot of time bringing those up to date too. Mm-hmm. So as I said, it's a very long list of things that I have to get done in the afternoon, mm-hmm. and that's pretty much my day. Except in the evenings, um, I have something that I call spare time writing. So once we've turned off the television from the one episode that we watch of whatever TV series we're watching at the time, um, I get to do spare time writing, which is self-indulgent, 
anything I want, play around with it, explore new ideas. It's sort of a, a story development process. Hmm. And uh, yeah, and, and this is where I start finding out <clears throat> what's appealing to me at the moment, what's tickling in the back of my brain. I also try a lot of new techniques. So if there's a dialogue beat that I want to try, I'll do a scene and so on and so forth. So the spare time writing I end up using, I will sometimes publish a short story or something like that that is a product of, of the spare time writing, but that's not part of the production schedule. I have a production schedule. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, it locks me into the, the year's worth of writing. Mm. So, yeah, That's an interesting concept because I think uh, you know I've heard some companies that you know, Google and some of these bigger companies, they're doing these, these projects where I, I think I heard Gmail came out of this process where they, they, they took employees and they said, okay, you know, you're working on this project, but we want you, we want you to work on something else and give you time to do that. And so a lot mm -hmm. of these kind of side projects ended up being some of their bigger projects. And it was kind of just a way to kind of just, yeah, like you're saying, experiment, try different things. And, um, you know, can you can you say you know maybe in some of this just fun writing that you know some ideas have come out of that or some books have come out of those times? Yeah, I I, I have squeezed a few books into the production schedule because the ideas that have come out it's an incubation process story mm -hmm. story development process. James Scott Bell talks about it a lot in his books, and I kind of stole the idea of story development from him. Um, but it, it's basically a chance when you're writing full time, particularly if you're trying to get a lot of titles out, quite often you don't take that downtime to just let the mind mull over things and sit in the back of the brain. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you can feel creatively dry because you're just going from book to book to book to book, um, whereas the spare time writing gives you a chance to, to, uh, to play around. There's no pressure. It's not like you have to hit a deadline. And my writing during the day does have a deadline. I, I do 6,000 words every day when I'm writing. And uh, I, my production schedule takes that into account, so I have deadlines that I have to hit and things like that. But the spare time writing gives me a chance to play around with ideas. Okay. And, yeah, I've had um, a couple of short stories and one series come out of it so far. Okay, great. Uh, talk a little bit about kind of what's your, um, you know, production as far as are you doing your own covers, you know, editing, formatting? I mean, do you have a team of people to help you or, or freelancers that are helping you or how do you kind of help with some of that? Well, control freak that I am, mm -hmm. I try to do as much of it as I can myself. But these days, time's getting pretty short. Um, I have always had a cover artist do my covers for me because I am not in any way talented when it comes to graphics and images and things like that. Mm -hmm. I can look at a cover and say if I like it or not, and that's pretty much the extent of my expertise. So I've, I actually stole my cover artist from the last um, traditional publisher that I was with. She got fired about the same time as I left. <laughs> She's been doing my covers ever since. Um, I have a line editor, um, but I'm also I'm a very clean writer. Mm -hmm. After so many years, I've I sort of know my grammar and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I only really need the line editor to go through and clean things up for me at the end. And um, my aim is always to have her come back and say, "Well, there wasn't much in this one." Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, 
my husband Mark has for the last couple of years been um, helping me with a lot of the promotion and marketing. Mm -hmm. He runs advertising for me on Facebook and Amazon. And uh, we also do a lot of talking about business aspects, like what the direction is going to be for the next year and doing business planning. And I have, I think, my other team member that I that saves my life on several occasions is my bookkeeper. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, I'm sort of building up a team bit by bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, they sort of happen organically. You, you find that you get overwhelmed in one area and you find a contractor that can do a little bit of the work for you and you you just gradually get into an area where they're helping you more and more so you end up with a new team member it's uh it's interesting the way it works that way but uh, it's very good to have the support there sounds great do you um when you edit do you are you i'm always interested in this question because people do it differently but do you kind of edit as you go or do you write straight through or how do you 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 say you have pretty clean drafts. I mean, what's kind of like you one drafter, two drafter, 28 drafter? <laughs> um, well, I hate rewriting with a passion. It just, it loses, it has no interest for me whatsoever. Um, I do something that uh, Dean Wesley Smith calls uh, cycling. Mm-hmm. Um, I will try to write as straightforward as I can, but I find when I come to a natural break, I'll go back a page or so and go through it again and I'll clean and tweak and stuff like that. And also because I'm a I just I'm a ten-fingered typist and I'm a very fast typist. And I don't even see me typing, I just see the words appear on the screen. And I find that because I'm so comfortable with the keyboard, that quite often I will be backspacing and cleaning up typos without even realizing that I'm doing it. It's just purely automatic. So a lot of the cleanup will happen on the way through. When I fit, but I try to go as quickly through the first draft as possible, and and get it because when you're writing white hot as fast as you can, that's when the really creative stuff happens. I find mm-hmm. as soon as you slow down and let the editor in, that's where it starts getting very dry and formulaic yeah. and things like that. So first draft, as fast and as hot as I can, then I'll go through and I'll do a very slow read where I will be cleaning up all the things that I am guilty of doing on a regular basis. I have a checklist. So once I've done a read through and a clean up, I will start going back through it over and over again, picking up each item on my checklist that my line editors over the years have told me I'm particularly bad at doing and fixing all those. So by the time it gets to the line editor, it's really clean. Sounds like a great process. Yeah, I, I, I find that too. It, it, there's something about keeping the story, you know, I call it keeping it warm. Yes, <laughs> Is, yeah. You know, even if you, you know, walk away from it for too long, you know, you kind of lose that kind of closeness to it and like what's going on and, you know. And you have to pick up all the strings. So yeah. you have to remember what all the characters were doing and what you were thinking when you were writing it. Yeah. and. It's for that reason I think that a writer in the middle of a manuscript manuscript needs to write every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, no weekends off, even if it's just 250 words so that you keep all those strings together yep. in your mind and you don't lose it. It doesn't go cold. Yep. So what's your timeline from beginning to end typically? Um, well, I can get uh, – well, let's see. The last one – the last book I wrote was – 63,000 words. I wrote the first manuscript in 10 days and um, 
the editing and production process is always five weeks because and that's not how long it actually takes me but there are people who need time so the line editor needs two and a half weeks right. my street team needs two and a half weeks to read and review and so the 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 editing and production period gets extended to however long those people need and while they're doing that I'm doing the formatting and setting up pre-orders and the site pages and all that sort of stuff okay that's great yeah so that's pretty pretty fast so about six seven weeks ish well five weeks for the production and let's say four to five weeks for the writing so okay. yeah about ten nine to ten weeks okay that's great that's great well hey um Tracy, as we get to the end, I always like to ask this question because you'd be surprised. Actually, people give different advice, but you know, the aspiring, the aspiring prolific writer, uh, what would be just your your advice? You know, whether that's one thing, two things, three things that uh, they should be thinking about as they consider writing. You know, daily writing, producing work, sharing work. Um, yeah, what would you what would you say to the audience? Um, okay, uh, I think the the most critical thing is you have to love what you're writing to be able to write fast. Mm. Um, if you really want to write to market because you're convinced that's the way to go, I think you need to find the markets where your writing interests intersect with those markets and just work in those areas. Mm. I mean, don't write erotic romance if you can't stand the stuff because you'll hate yourself <laughs> <laughs> a few years down the track. Mm -hmm. I think you need to write every day, but... I, and everyone says that, but I just stop for a minute and think about that. Writing every day is incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. You've got to just being able to sit down in the chair is the critical thing, and that requires all sorts of organisation of your life. You have to you have to negotiate with family members. You have to have your schedule under control. You have to have discipline to actually sit down in the chair. So if you make it a goal to write every day, even if it's only 250 words, once you get that 250 words down, it's very easy to keep going. Mm. But if you, if you have that goal of just writing every day, 250 words, um, that will do a lot to get your productivity up. Mm. Uh, what else is there? Keep statistics. I think keep track of how many words you're writing. Um, keep track of how many words per hour you're writing because it's really nice as you get more practiced and develop more books write and complete more books your writing per word count per hour will increase which means suddenly you can write more books and that that's a reward all by itself mm -hmm. so like that I mean the whole thing about writing a lot of books is it's a numbers game and I think a lot of people miss that point mm -hmm. if if, you, if you've got 10 books, if you've only got 10 books published and you sell one copy per book per day, that's 300 books a month. Mm -hmm. So if you were selling them at two, and this is really basic bottom line talking here, if those books were being sold at $2.99 each, that's $2.09 profit for you per book per sale. At times 300 books for the month, that's 627 for the month, which is which doesn't sound like a lot but you're paying a few utility bills there and you're getting huge self-respect just for, for pulling that off. But here's the thing. If you've got 100 books, that's over $6,000 a month for one sale per book per day. Mm -hmm. And then that's a living wage. Mm -hmm. 
So that's where becoming prolific and writing fast and, and getting your productivity up really pays off. Mm. It means that you don't have to hit a bestseller list. Right. It means that you don't have to be a famous author. I mean, nobody knows who I am, mm -hmm. and I'm making a very nice living. I'm paying all the bills, and I've maintained it for over a year now. So um, you don't have to have you don't have to, a lot of the stories that you hear about bestsellers and people that are selling thousands of copies a month. They're outliers. Mm -hmm. They're talked about because they're unusual. Mm -hmm. But there's a whole lot of what I call the new mid list authors who are making a very nice living quietly going about their business and putting a lot of books out there. And I think that's the key. I love that. That's great. Yeah, that's, it is, it's just a numbers game. I mean, it's, it, yeah. it, if you wrote, you know, a thousand words a day for a year, I mean, you could have 20 books and yes. I, I think that's what people don't realize. It's, you know, they think it's just, Oh, this is just crazy. And this is overwhelming. And, you know, I love and that's yeah. a thousand words is an hour's worth of work for even the slowest writer. You right. can probably get a thousand words an hour done and everyone can find an hour a day. Yep. If, but that's the trick. You've got to do it every single day. Yep. If you do it every yep. single day, yeah, you get all these books that are done. Yep. Oh, I, I think that's great advice. Well, hey, Tracy, this has been just action-packed, knowledge-packed, um, really helpful. <laughs> you're going to help a lot of people, just all your advice and experiences and uh, all the books you're writing. And before you go, just tell us, uh, tell the audience where we can find you and go pick up a couple of your books. Uh, you can find everything about me and my books at my site, which is tracycooperposey.com. And I'll spell that because people tend to mess it up a lot. It's T R A C Y. C-O-O-P-E-R-P-O-S-E-Y.com. Great. Well, thanks again, Tracy. It's been a privilege. And, uh, yeah, all best of luck. And uh, keep cranking out those books and cranking out those words. Say good day to Harrison for me. I will. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for stopping by the Prolific Writer Podcast. Please leave a review on iTunes so we can help more writers share their stories with the world and head over to rockhousepublishing.com for books, resources and other writing and publishing tips. See you next time. Introducing Self, a new show about real people who are challenging their relationship to money to build a better future for themselves. My new focus is like, as these good things happen in my life, I want to be able to enjoy them. Their loved ones. Not like I really don't want my daughters out here wanting for nothing. Um, now it's kind of backfired because <laughs> now they really don't have no respect for me. And their communities. I want to create more services where women can feel supported when they don't have support. Self is live now with new episodes every Wednesday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.